Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to grab your Bibles. Uh, We're going to pick up the same place we were last week, John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, uh, we, we, we looked at some teaching that Jesus did. We said it was pretty expansive. There was no way to get to um, all of it, so we needed to press into two, two weeks. Uh, quite frankly, that's not really uh, substantial enough either. We probably could go on and on, but we're just going to take two weeks into this. So if you have your Bibles, uh, John chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 uh, through 5 this morning. And then uh, jump over to verse 16. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already, he's speaking to the disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you'll jump over to verse 16. Jesus said this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Other translations say remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is the, the word of the Lord. Now, here Jesus is teaching his disciples many things about how life change comes, how personal transformation uh, occurs. We, we often call it spiritual growth around here. And last week, we said that Jesus really clearly showed us in this passage that there are two ways that that comes about, that one of those ways is the work that the Father does uh, as the vine dresser to produce growth in us. The other is our, our part, our, our assignment, the role that uh, we play in this movement uh, of growth. And we spent all of last week kind of unpacking our part, which Jesus tells us is we've got to abide in him. That was, that was our part, and we unpacked that, that phrase in a significant way last week. And so today what we're going to do is turn our attention to what Jesus says is God's role in this. And I, I really believe that this was a springboard uh, today for uh, kind of launching a new series that we've entitled Flourish, because you know the, it, flourish, a, a life that flourishes is something that everyone longs for. And uh, if you have kids or, and or grandkids, one of the prayers of your heart is often that their life would flourish. You'll pray very specifically about aspects of their, their lives flourishing. At, here at River Bluff, one of, our, one of our six core values is the place where God has planted us in the greater Charleston area, the city of Charleston. And it, we, we, we value the city where God has planted us. In fact, if you're saying, we have core values, we have six, and if you're not sure what they are, they've been beautifully displayed recently on the main hallway 
Uh, if you went down B or C and just went to the back, you'll, you'll see them displayed now, and uh, you can read about them. And one of those is the, the city of Charleston, and what, what we desire is to be a part of God's plan to see everyone in our city flourish because that's the, the hope of God. Now, th- that's where the great desire, if you have a desire for yourself or your family, or friends, or your church, or, or anyone for that matter, to really, to really flourish, it comes from God. See, for, for the Christ follower, flourishing goes a little bit deeper. In fact, it goes much deeper than, than the culture. Most people just think flourishing is about me pursuing the good life. Flourishing in the heart of a Christ follower because we're in the, created in the image of God and, and we, we know that and we want to pursue that, it, it means that we want to pursue the life as it was meant to be. Not just the good life that the world tells us about, but the life that God intended. And when, see, you remember in Genesis when God was done with creation before he rested on the seventh day, it says God looked around and said, it is very good. God had designed all of creation to flourish. And being a part of being made in God's image means that we would desire that too. That's what God set out to do. Now, no one takes greater delight in flourishing for anyone than God. As much as you want your kids to flourish, God wants it even more. As much as you may want to flourish, God wants you to flourish even more. It's his great aim, his great plan for our lives. And, and God has a, what, I, what we'll call a great growth plan for that flourishing. And here's the really cool part of it. It's his plan. He oversees it. But he also directly and personally and intimately engages in that plan. He acts on it. God, your father, Jesus is pointing out today, is hands-on in the way that he describes him. And see, again, everything God created, he wants it to flourish. And so what we want to do is, is kind of understand this. Now, for anything to truly flourish, any kind of life form, it's got to be able to reproduce. It's got to, 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 to bear fruit. All healthy living things reproduce. They, they bear fruit of some kind. And Jesus says that's not only true for, for plants, it's true for, for human beings. In order for us to, to, to flourish, we've got to, to bear fruit. And not just, not just in the physical realm, but also that we might bear fruit uh, spiritually in our lives. And that it wouldn't just be any kind of fruit. It would be the kind of fruit that could, could remain. And Jesus reveals this to us in this great teaching here, in this parable of, of the vine and branches. He's pointing this out. Now, I believe, uh, we've talked about this before, context is so really important to grab hold of, of all of this, to, to really grab hold of the, the heart of God to, for flourishing. So I wanna, I wanna quickly give you some uh, context for, for this teaching that Jesus gives. Many of you know that uh, John chapters 13 through 17 are the record, John's record of what happened, the events of what happened the night before Jesus was crucified. 
So John 13 through 17 does that, those events. In John chapter 13, we see it starts, Jesus was preparing himself for for Passover. And then as John 13 continues on, we we see the Passover meal. Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak to this in in even greater detail than John does. This this Passover celebration that they were participating in. And and let let me... just say something to you, you, those of you in the room and those of you watching today, you get a, kind of an advanced invitation. On Sunday, March the 28th at 4 p.m., we are going to engage in a gigantic Zoom Passover. Um, we had actually engaged uh, uh, the ministry of Jews for Jesus. We were, we, we were going to do this live on Sunday, March 28th, but they are, they're based in, uh, in New York City, and so they are still not going to be sending their missionaries out yet. But we've worked it out with the missionary that was being assigned to us to do a, a, a massive Zoom meeting and for you in your homes to be able to celebrate and engage in, in an actual Passover taster. And it will be interactive. We will send you in advance the elements that you are going to need for your household, your family, you to, to, to engage actively uh, in Passover. It, they call it Christ in the Passover because it's going to point to Jesus. And uh, we're doing this because we want, we want to have this full experience of, uh, of what the Lord's Passion Week was like so that we experience the joy of, of, of Resurrection Sunday with even, even a, f- a greater fullness than we've ever had before. So they're in this Passover meal, and in, in, in verses 4 through 5 of John 13, Jesus gets up from the meal, John tells us, and he washes the disciples' feet, something that they had not had happen before. In verse 21, Jesus predicts that he's going to be betrayed. In verse 30, Judas sets out to actually go engage in that betrayal. We get to uh, John chapter 14, and Jesus is noticing that his disciples have grown very fearful, probably deer in the headlights look from some of the things he said that were about to happen. And so Jesus speaks these words uh, in John chapter 14, verse 1. It's not going to come up on the screen. You can write it down and look at it later. Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't, don't, let, don't be troubled. Jesus begins to, in chapter 14, to comfort his disciples. And then we get through to the end of John chapter 14, and the last words of Jesus recorded there are these. Rise, let us go from here. And so we assume that that's what, what took place, that Jesus and the disciples left that upper room where they were gathered for the Passover meal, and begin a journey that we know uh, by the time we get to John 17 ends at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus ends up being arrested. Now, historians, uh, archaeologists, theologians have tried to trace where they believe the upper room was and what that journey from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane would have been like. And they tell us that that journey would have taken them past the temple. And most of you know that Passover is always on the full moon in that month. So the temple would have been illuminated, if it wasn't you know, a cloudy night, would have been illuminated by the full moon. And one of the things that the disciples walking by would have seen is this giant uh, image of a vine a cluster, with a cluster of grapes on the building of the Holy of Holies, on the door there. 
that, that, that was embossed there, if you would. And they, people who went to worship at the temple would have seen that. Not only that, as they were passing by houses along the way, they would have seen grapevines growing. If, if they had done what uh, th- this, this track tells us, they would have passed through the Kidron Valley where it is known that there were some uh, grapevines growing. And all the way into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this, this repetition of, of vines that w- they would have seen is perfectly placed for Jesus to do what Jesus always does. If you follow his teaching, it seems like Jesus always teaches out of what's right in front of him. Out of what real life experience people were having in that moment. And so Jesus, I think, as they're walking by the temple and by these grapevines, just simply says these incredible, incredible words. And we see this in John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I believe that those words were to point out a great contrast. See, in in Israel that day, the the Jews had begun to see themselves as this incredible vine, this vine of God. And it was, it was, I mean, it was even on some of their coins. It was a national emblem. And it had become to be associated with uh, Jewish worship. And, and that had kind of become more about religion than about God. And I, I think Jesus is saying, there is a distinction between this vine that you see there and me. I am, I am the true vine. There had been, there had, had this nationalism had grown to, it, it was more about their nation than it was about their relationship with God. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. I'm not what's going on. The politicizing of, 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 of God, it's, it's not about that. Jesus makes this contrast. And I, I believe he's making this powerful statement to reveal a certain truth. And it's simply this. Jesus reveals his distinct difference from religion. Jesus is distinctly different from those who try to pursue God through religious means. And he's, he's setting himself apart, contrasting that. Now, when, when the Old Testament speaks, because it does, the Old Testament speaks much of this imagery of the vine and, and the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21, uh, God's word says this. He says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, Holy of pure seed, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Most often in the scriptures, in the Old Testament especially, among the prophets, when you see them comparing the nation of Israel to a vine, there is this chastisement of God that comes along with it. This chastising word in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, it, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. It goes on, however, to chastise them from having walked into idolatry, to walk a- away from God. The psalmist in Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, he speaks about the great work of God as this gardener, this, this planter who, who sought to care for the nation of Israel, but they departed from God. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's saying to his followers who lived in this culture that that believed that they were saved because they were part of 
a nation because they were born with, with Jewish blood. And Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. I'm not all of this religious pursuit. I've come to give you life and blessing and, and the flourishing that God intended. See, Jesus knew that most of the Jews believed that they had salvation in God just because they were born with, with Jewish blood. And Jesus is saying that's not true. Many of you remember that in the Gospel of John, one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and Jesus said, it's not by physical birth that you have salvation. You've got to be born again. You have to have this experience where you become grafted into the true vine. And friends, that's still true today. So many people think that because their mama is a devoted Christian or their grandfather was a devoted Jesus follower, that somehow they, they were born a Christian. Nobody has ever been born a Christian but Christ himself. Nobody. None of us have ever been born that way, if you would. And, and Jesus is trying to point that he's the only true vine. And then Jesus continues on in, in verse 1. He says, here's the truth about me. I'm the true vine. And my father, he's the vine dresser. Now, this, this leads to the second point that I think Jesus is trying to reveal to us to help us to get. And it's this, is that Father God has a very distinct role in our flourishing. It's, it's very distinct. It's very active. You know, we've already said that nobody cares more about your flourishing, about, about our flourishing than God. Some of you may remember Jeremiah chapter 29. There's a great verse in there, verse 11. Many of you have memorized it. It says, for I know the plans I have for you says the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about elements of what it would look like to flourish, plans for a future and, and, and a hope. Well, that, that verse is part of the bigger chapter, chapter 29, and in that, that chapter is all, it's written to God's people who were in a place they didn't want to be. In a time they didn't want to be, they were being held captive. They had been taken, captured from their homeland and taken into Babylon. And they were living as exiles there. And they desperately wanted out. But God said, I want to show you how to flourish even in a hostile environment. You know, maybe, just maybe, we need to spend some time reading reflectively in Jeremiah 29 these days to see what it looks like for those of us who are in Christ to know how to live in a hostile environment because here's the truth. If you are part of the true vine, if you're in Christ, the Bible says your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's in the kingdom of God. Now, you're a citizen of the United States of America if you live here and are a citizen, and we're supposed to be good citizens, but it's not our primary citizenship. Primarily, we are children of the king. We're of a different kingdom, and we need to understand because it feels like at times that we're in a hostile territory. Psalm chapter 92, verses 12 and following say this. The righteous flourish. They are planted in the house of the Lord, they flourish in the courts of God. Now that verse starts out by saying the righteous. Friends, remember, never forget, the only thing that can make anyone righteous is Jesus. You and I, the Bible says, our own personal individual righteousness to, in the sight of God is, is wretched. 
It's, it's filthy in the sight of, it's not even righteousness in the sight of God. And so when it talks about the righteous, the only way that righteousness could be seen on us is if we have the righteousness of Christ. And the Bible tells us that God, God took care of that. That when Jesus hung on the cross, that there was this transfer that took place. That God took our filthy, dirty, unrighteousness and put it all on Jesus. And then he took the righteousness of Christ and for anybody who would put their trust in him, they could be clothed in that righteousness. And that would be all that God sees when he looks at us is the, is the righteousness of Jesus, the only true source of life. Now, friends, you know this. You feel it experientially right now. Everything in this world is lining itself up against God's plan for us to truly flourish. But please hear this. God is not going to give up. God is not going to quit. God is going to continue to tend to you, Jesus says, like a vine dresser, a gardener tends to to his vine. Because, see, God sees your flourishing as his primary aim. He's working for you to flourish so that you can bring great glory to him into his kingdom for all eternity. He wants you to have that kind of life. And so we see that this leading up to the third thing that Jesus reveals here, and it's this. Jesus reveals that there are four seasons, if you would, or maybe four conditions of flourishing in fruitfulness. Four, four different conditions of, of bearing fruit uh, that, that you and I might have. Look back at, at John uh, 15, verses 2 and 5. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So there are some branches in him that aren't bearing fruit. It says he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. In verse 5, he says, I'm the vine. He repeats that again. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now, before we look at those conditions of, of, of fruitfulness, I, I think we ought to define what is fruit. When the Bible talks about fruit, what, what does the, the Bible mean? Back in 2002, right as we were moving into this building, there was a book released entitled The Secrets of the Vine. It was a little book by Bruce Wilkinson. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. Um, it had a significant impact on many of us here. It had a significant impact in my life, uh, specifically as it relates to understanding John 15. There was some, some breakthrough that, that, that God brought. And one of the things that it did was it helped me kind of walk away with a very, what I would call clear definition of what it means to, to bear fruit, to have spiritual fruit in my life. And here's my, what I'll call my concise definition. Um, it's simply this. Spiritual fruit is internal and external good works that can only be produced by those in Christ. Internal, external good works that can only be produced by those who are in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul discipled many people. Two, of, two men that he specifically discipled were Timothy and Titus. And he writes about the, these concepts to these men. He says to Timothy, he's talking about the, the people Timothy would disciple. He said, they're to do good. They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. Then over in Titus, uh, he writes to Titus and he talks about the, the people that he would disciple. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
There's this tie to good works and, and fruitfulness. Paul is, Paul is making that connection to those, those activities. Many of you know Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that Jesus tells us about is that we're to do good works in such a way that men are, and women around us can, can see those good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So God wants us to, to have these good works. And there are some of those good works are, are external. Some of, the, some of those are things that you will do out in the world, like, like right now. Some of our river family have taken food that maybe some of you guys prepared, taken food down to the homeless on third Sunday, working to, to care for the homeless in our city. That's an external good work. Some of you this week have worked over uh, with, in partnership with uh, Low Country Cares Ministries that we're a, a part of and uh, over on our other campus. And you've worked to provide food for those who are, are needy uh, for those kinds of things. Others of you have been at work this week uh, writing to and caring for and, and reading stories for uh, kids in the elementary school in our Oak Brook uh, elementary partnership that we have here. There, there are others. Some of you are involved uh, over at the Crisis uh, Pregnancy Center and, and encouraging uh, young ladies and women to, to, to not, uh, to keep their babies. It, it, this reminds me, you know, the, the fetal heartbeat legislation passed in our state, praise God, our governor signed it uh, into law. Yeah, praise God. Amen. Celebrate it. But it's under attack. It's under legal attack. And, and we, need to, we need to pray. I, I want to urge you to pray for its protection in this, in this legal battle right now. Um, in fact, let's just do that. Can, can, we just, can we just stop for a minute and pray? Lord God, there is a great blight on our land. Uh, uh, God, just in this culture that feels like a culture of death at times. And we just come to you now. Lord, you have moved on the hearts of leaders in our state to protect the lives of unborn babies. And we just pray right now, Jesus, that you would protect this legislation as it comes under attack from our culture, from this world. Father, we pray that this would be useful in your hand to save lives. Little unborn lives, God. We pray for your power and your protection over this as it moves through the court system. Open the eyes, God, of judges to your truth, the truth about life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All of these things that you engage in, those are, those are external words. Praying. Praying like we just prayed, praying like you pray for others. That's an external work. Now, here's the cool thing about prayer. Prayer is also an internal work. Prayer is one of the things that many of you have probably heard the phrase before, prayer changes things. Do you know what prayer changes the most? The person praying. The person that's before the Lord. We're, we're the ones that get mostly changed by prayer. There's this external good works, but there are also internal good works. Paul writes to the church at Galatia about it. We looked at it last week, Galatians chapter 5. The Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
There are other internal spiritual fruits, forgiveness. All kinds of internal spiritual fruits that the scripture points out, these, these good works that are going on internally. And one of the reasons I believe that God is so invested in those eter- internal good works is because he knows that they always result in external good works. There is no way that the fruit of the spirit of love can grow in you. There, there's no way that you can grow in love and not grow to love like Jesus does. And where Jesus tells us that, you know, we, we need to become the kinds of people who even love our enemies. We find ourselves loving our enemies. That's a, a fruit that is being born in us because of Jesus at, at work in us. And that's, that's an internal fruit that leads to an external expression. And that's what Jesus told his followers that he had done. He had chosen them. And in verse 16, he said, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The Apostle Paul, this isn't in your notes, not going to come up. You may want to write it down, Colossians 1.10. Paul, writing about this, says that we need to seek to please the Lord in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. There needs to be fruit in, in our good works. Now, I told you that Jesus points out these four conditions, these kind of four seasons of fruitfulness that we can be in. And I just want to run through them real quick. I'm just going to give you those, those four seasons. First of all, Jesus points out there's a no fruit season. And Jesus points out there is a some fruit season. And Jesus points out there is a more fruit season. And then Jesus points out that there can be a much fruit season. Now look back at verses 2 and 5 with me. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. No fruit. One condition. He says he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit. This is a branch that has some fruit on it. He prunes so that it can bear more fruit. There's that third condition, if you would, this, this more fruit-bearing condition. In verse 5, he goes on to say, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's the, the ultimate condition that God wants us to be found in. Now, I want you to look at these. I, I, I point these out not so that you can become obsessed with fruit, you, you don't get fruity on me, okay? Just, it's, it's not so that you can, and it's, it's definitely not so that you become a fruit inspector. There, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that they spend much of their time trying to look at your fruit. That it's, we're not pointing that out for this reason. The reason that Jesus points these out, I believe, is to show us how God is at work no matter which condition you find yourself in. No matter which uh, season of fruit bearing that you find yourself in, Jesus is going to point out the activity of God. And God is involved in this massive effort. You know, I think oftentimes we think it's, that, that it's us that puts forth all the effort uh, to produce fruit. I want to share with you something that it was a study done uh, about corn. And about the only place in the world that you're going to get a study done about corn, of course, is Iowa. You know, they, 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 uh, the University of Iowa, the School of Agriculture, um, studied how much, that, what does it take to yield 100 bushels of corn from an acre of land? And they said, now, in addition to many hours of the farmers, you also need 
four, four million pounds of water. I don't know why they didn't do gallons, but they went with pounds. You need 6,800 pounds of oxygen. How they measured that, I don't know. You need 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur, and then a, a, a other assorted elements. It says, in addition to these things, you need some rain and sunshine at just the right time. And then they go on to estimate that only 5% of the yield can be accredited to the work of the, the farmer. That's, that's the only part of the yield. Now, you know, we've got to apply that, I think, to our own spiritual life. Sometimes we believe that we have to do all the work. But friends, Jesus is going to show us the work that God does. He, he, he is the one that wants to bring about our flourishing. He's the one that wants, you know, he's more interested in our fruitfulness than, than we are. And so he puts forth all of this, this great, incredible work to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And what we have to do is we have to, we have to live in that. And uh, Jesus points out that what God does is predicated on what condition you currently find yourself in. Now, I want to dive into that in just a second, but I, I want to point out something because there is a, a bit of a debate over some verses in this passage. And it, 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 I struggled with this years ago. Um, again, uh, Dr. Wilkinson helped me see things differently. Uh, so did uh, uh, Dr. Boyce helped me see this differently. And it's this. In verse 2 and verse 6 of this passage of scripture, there are two kind of branches that are talked about. In verse 2, we read, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse 6, it says, Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I've heard this parable taught on, and people teach that Verse 2 and verse 6 are the very same branches. Same, same, same branches. But when I read this, when I went back and was prompted by Dr. Wilkinson, Dr. Boyce, to try to study the actual original languages of this, I'm convinced these are not the same kind of branches. They're just, they're not. Verse 2 branches, Jesus said, these are branches that are in me. It means in Christ. Verse 6 branches are not. He says, these are not branches that abide in me, that are not connected to, to life in me. And somebody says, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the, here's the big deal. If, if verse 2 branches and verse 6 branches are the same, then the ultimate result of verse 2 branches that supposedly are in Christ means that one day they're going to be thrown away, they'll wither, they'll be gathered, they'll be thrown into the fire, and they'll ultimately be burned, and that's being done by God. Friends, nowhere does the Scripture teach that. There is no way that verse 2 branches and verse 6 branches are the same kind of branches. They are different branches. Verse 2 branches are, are in Christ. There's this working in there See, if you've ever trusted Christ, if you've ever been grafted into the true vine, you have Jesus' promise that God the Father is going to, to be at work in you. He's not going to give up on you. 
the outcome of verse two branches and verse six branches are gonna be very, very different. And it's so interesting to me that this, this is taught sometimes out of the gospel. The gospel of John is probably the most preeminent gospel uh, about, that teaches the eternal security of the believer. If, if you're in Christ, Jesus said in John chapter six, verse 39, and this is the will. It's not in your notes. You may want to write it down. John six thirty nine. And this is the will of God that I should not lose even one of all those God the Father has given me. But I should raise them up on the last day. Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any, anyone who's been given to me. In John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, Jesus said, my sheep listen. They know my voice. They follow me. And then he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. He says, my father has given them to me, and my father's more powerful than anyone, and no one can take them away from the father. See, when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, you're that second verse two kind of branch. You're, you're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, when you come to Christ, there is some internal fruit that happens immediately. Some of you may have seen our Who, I'm, Who I Am in Christ cards. If you haven't, you probably need to get one. I think they're on the, the Welcome Center counter on the way out. But here's some of the fruit that you get the moment you come to Christ, some internal fruit. You become God's child. You're Christ's friend. That's a a friendship internally. You're a member of Christ's body. You've been adopted as God's child. You're complete in Christ. That's a fruit that Jesus provides you. Um, You can be assured that all things are going to work together for good. You were free from any condemning charges against you. You can be confident in the good work that God has begun. He's going to perfect. You're hidden with Christ in God. You're significant. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're a minister of reconciliation. You are Christ's workmanship. Those are true about you if you're in Christ. Those are internal good works that come. That's not going to be cut off. That's not, going to be, that's not going to wither. That's not going to be picked up by God and burned. Because God values you and he's giving attention to the production of fruit in you. And I want us to look at what God does now. No matter which condition you find yourself in. I want to start back at verse, verse 1. Jesus said, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. This is the no fruit branch. What does he do? It says, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse 5, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There there are three kinds of activities of God God the Father that Jesus points out here. And so this is what the, the, the next thing that Jesus is revealing, I think, is Jesus reveals God's work in each season to bring more fruit. He reveals the work that God is doing in you and in me to produce more fruit in us. And I want you to look at these with me, if you would. Verse 2 says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, speaking about God the vine dresser, he does what? What does he do? ESV says he takes away. The verb that's used there, the, the, the actual Greek word that's used there is the word iro. This is how it's translated throughout the whole of the New Testament. I looked it up in my Strong's uh, Greek-Hebrew dictionary, and it says this. That verb, 32 times, is translated take up. 
25 times it's translated take away. 25 times it's translated take. It's also translated away with. It's also translated as lift up. And it's also translated as bear. Now, for me, it's unfortunate that the NIV translates that verb as cuts off. As cuts off. Now, again, there was a time that I thought that's what it said. That was an understanding that I had. Dr. Wilkinson and Dr. James Montgomery Boyce helped me understand something different. And I want you to read what Dr. Boyce says in his commentary on this verse. He says this, I'm convinced that these translators that translate with cut off have uh, missed the true meaning of the term in this instant. Undoubtedly, their translation has been made to conform to what they believe is coming in verse 6, which we've already said, those are two different kinds of vines. He says the translation is not the, uh, the, that cut-off translation is not the best or even the most general meaning of the Greek word, iro, that lies behind it. He says the verse makes better sense and the sequence of verbs is better if the primary meaning of the word is taken. In that case, the sentence would read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That is to keep it from trailing on the ground. It goes on to say this translation makes better sense of the passage in every way, and in addition, it's much better theology. What what Dr. Boyce is saying is this is in keeping with the whole counsel of God is understanding that when ESV says he takes away, it's not meaning that he's taking it away to burn it. It means he's taking it away out of something. He's lifting it up out of something. That's the primary best way to translate that verse. You know, if God was going to lop us off when we didn't bear fruit. Okay, let me ask you this question. Since you became a Christian, has there ever been five minutes in your life when you weren't bearing fruit? Me? Does God cut you off because you stopped bearing fruit? What about five hours? Ever been maybe five hours in a day when you weren't bearing fruit? Me? Does God cut you off after five hours? What about five days? What is the, what's, the, what's the lop-off point? Friends, if you're in Christ, no such thing. There's never this, this lop-off point. Friends, you and I go through, we go through seasons of dryness. We go through sorrows sometimes. Maybe, maybe when someone that you love very dearly passes. We go through seasons of depression sometimes. We go through bouts of overwhelming temptation at times. And most likely during those times, you're not really producing a whole lot of spiritual fruit. Sometimes you're just barely holding on to your faith. God does not lop you off. He's not that kind of father. What I think this passage is actually saying is that what God does is God takes you away from that. And he does it by lifting you up. And anytime you reach down and lift something up, you know what happens automatically? It comes closer to you. And that's what God does. When you're in a condition of not bearing fruit, I believe God does, he, he pulls you up out of that, bringing you closer to himself. 
If you're in sin, God's seeking to do that. If you're in sorrow, if you're in a season of unforgiveness, if you're in a season of great fear, God wants to take you away, draw you nearer to him so that he can do what he does next to produce some fruit in you, which John 15, 2 says, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That's, the, that's what God does. That's the next activity of God. After he takes you up, takes you away out of that, he draws you near to himself so he can see what needs to be pruned because God loves us. And so he wants to encourage us to bear more fruit. So God starts cutting away the stuff in us that's dead, the stuff that's dying in us, that's causing us to die on the vine. He starts cutting that away so that we can flourish. Sometimes he even... He even cuts off some good fruit, some good stuff that's going on, so that you can move to, to, to better. And then from better to, to best, because God has this plan, this vision of your life that's, that's beautiful. It's, it's flourishing. See, uh, pruning doesn't just mean a type of surgery that removes the bad stuff. See, God's at work doing something bigger than just that. You know, the truth is, pruning, pruning hurts. The Bible's clear about that. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer writes this. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For the discipline of the Lord, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's why God prunes us. That's why he, he disciplines us. You know, sometimes, sometimes God just uses, you're reading God's word and suddenly you're awakened to, oh my goodness, that's going on in me. God's pruning. Sometimes God brings a brother or a sister who's looking at something in your life and they speak a word into you and you go, oh my goodness, I gotta deal with this. That's God, that's God pruning. He, he, he uses all kinds of methods, but the, the word here for pruning is not the kind of thing that just haphazardly is cutting things away. God is not like a holy weed whacker, you know, coming at you. He, he's, he's coming in, in love. The, the, the same word here that's used for prune also gets translated as cleanses. So he's cleaning things up in you and me. In order to, to, to correct us, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus himself speaks these words, verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love. See, all of the, the, the removing activity of God is to increase the harvest, increase your capacity to flourish. You know, in, in spiritual terms, if, if God's work in removing uh, the, the, in our spiritual lives, you know, it, it, it means to have bad habits stripped away. It means to, to, to have our priorities reordered, our values may be changed. It may mean removing some people, friends in our lives that are not helping us flourish. And God is at work. And it hurts sometimes. It, I think if a, a, an actual grapevine could talk, when a vine dresser cuts some things, I think it would say, ouch, that hurts. The Bible says it hurts, but there's a purpose. And I think the grapevine would eventually, on the other side, say, okay, I get it. I get why you did this, so I, I could bear more. Now, it's, it's that movement from no fruit to, to, to some fruit, but God wants to, to bring you more fruit. And then he wants to bring you much fruit. 
In John 15, 5, Jesus says this, whoever abides in me and I in him, he's the one that bears much fruit. And we talked pretty extensively last week about what, what it means to abide, what, what our role is in, in the abiding. Then God, God uh, allows us you know, to, to do that. But then Jesus says here, if you abide in me and I in him. Friends, that's a whole additional level of activity of God. Jesus is now abiding in you. He has set up space in your heart that is significant. And here's the way I want to describe it. It's experiential. You experience the peace of Jesus living in you. You experience the love of Jesus flowing out of you because it's in you. You start experiencing, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive in me. Now, many people live their Christian lives for a long period of time before they ever experience that. And that's what's being spoken of here. Jesus says, and when that moment happens, here's what happens. Fruit production goes crazy. It goes to this much fruit. It's a, it's a byproduct. And great glory comes to God. And here's a really cool thing. Jesus says it's the kind of spiritual fruit that lasts. And it actually goes with you into eternity. It's, it's that fruit that could be external, when, maybe when you share Christ with somebody, you tell somebody else about Jesus, that could be a fruit that remains and follows you into eternity. It could be breakthrough that comes when you finally get freedom from a habit or a hangup that has been just, uh, uh, just keeping you down. It might be a restored relationship. Let me, let me close with this last thought, and I want to use the amplified translation of verse 6 because it does that. It amplifies the full kinds of meaning of the words here. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and I have appointed you. He explains it. I have planted you that you might go and bear fruit and keep on bearing and that your fruit may be lasting, that is, it may remain, abide, so that, here's a condition here, this kind of fruit, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, as presenting all that I am, he may give to you. And here's what I believe this is saying. Jesus is revealing that my fruit can have lasting value and powerful impact. It can, it can have eternal lasting value and very powerful impact. See, it's, it's this fruit in you that begins to desire what God desires so that the part of your prayer life that is about asking, that when you, start, you go to God and you're in prayer and you're asking for things, it begins to be transformed from just asking about what I want, my wants. It begins to be transformed into thinking about what does God want? What is God's desire for our planet, for, for our people, for our city, for my family, for our friends, for, for our church? And it's this kind of spiritual work that happens internally as Jesus is abiding in us, as we've made room for him. Paul wrote to Timothy instructing kind of what that should look like, that, that it should be our aim. In verse, chapter 6, verse 18, he, he's speaking of God's people. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, thus storing up treasure for themselves. Our good works store up treasure. 
for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, and without faith it's impossible to please him forever, uh, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Question today is, one of them is, do you believe? Do you believe that your good works, that God can make them into something eternal in nature? That they will have an eternal value and they will also bring about your flourishing today. Do you believe that? Are you engaged in that? Are you looking to see, okay, here's where I'm at right now. I don't think, I don't think there's any fruit being produced in my life. And I just start praying with Jesus. Jesus, Father, God. Would you come and take me away from this that's keeping me down? Or maybe there's some fruit going on in your life and, and you're saying, dear God, I, 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 want to in, I want to embrace your pruning. I want to receive that because I want to move to that place where I recognize that I understand experientially. I feel, Jesus, you moving around in me. I feel you abiding in me. I experience that on a re- more regular basis so that there could be even more flourishing. There could be a greater yield of productivity in the kingdom so that, God, you could be glorified, that great glory might come to you. And so I just want to close with this question. What could you maybe do today, starting today, to make room, to make, make more room for Jesus to, to abide more fully in you. What, what, what is it that you could do? What, what prayers could you begin praying? What habits could you be in, engaging? What, what words could you be sharing with others to see Jesus experientially experience him abiding in you? And will you do that? Will you make room for him? Let's pray. Lord, we come at this moment, we come first, God, thanking you that, that you, oh God, that you were so intimate, so active, so hands-on in our lives that you don't just leave it up to chance that our lives might flourish. You don't leave it up to our efforts primarily, but that you were intimately at every level working in us. And we, we just begin by saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have a more beautiful plan for our lives than we have. Thank you, God, that you will never cut us off. Thank you, God, that you are at work in us, around us, drawing us to your beautiful vision for our lives. God, we come. We come desiring, Jesus, that we would experience not just our life in you, but your life in us. And so in this moment, Holy Spirit, if there's something that needs to come out to make room, if there's part of our our fleshly habits that we need to crucify in order to make room, Jesus, more room for you. Show us. Lord, we're gonna come and we're gonna worship you, but as we do, maybe you wanna reveal something, something that we need to say, yes, God, prune that out. 
Yes, God, lift us up out of this mire that we're in. We want to come to you. We want to make more room for you in our lives so that great glory would come to you, God, that our life might flourish and the good works might be seen and that we might give you glory, Jesus. We might praise your name and lift you up. Work in us now as we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.